Let's get going, everybody. <clears throat> A lot of excitement tonight. There must be something going on. Hey, let's get going. So, uh, first of all, a huge uh, welcome uh, back to our Ecuador team. Uh, they made it back this morning. So glad that they're back. That included my wife. So I was really happy uh, for them to return. Uh, many just incredible stories. We're going to be hearing more uh, from them as the weeks go along. But just in getting to talk to Jared today, I can tell that his heart and the team's heart has been impacted with uh, the reality of Christ, uh, not just in our own context, but the power of the gospel in all contexts. And so excited for them to share more with you, but we just uh, welcome them back. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Any uh, DC Talk fans here tonight? Any DC Talk fans? Uh, the mid-90s Christian rock band that I know many of you uh, came to love and adore. And those of you that have never heard of them think that that's the cheesiest name for a band ever created. But many of you think that, uh, that this quote comes from the DC Talk song, What If I Stumble? Many of you have heard this quote before. It's right uh, at the beginning of What If I Stumble? DC Talk did not originate the quote. Uh, it was a man named uh, Brennan Manning. Very interesting man. You may not know or uh, recognize the name, but he wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, and so maybe that's familiar to you. I've uh, literally been pondering this quote for 10, 11, 12 years. Think about it often. The question I want to ask of you tonight as we're getting going is, do you agree or disagree with that statement? That the greatest cause of atheism in our culture, in our world, are professing believers, in quotation marks, who say all of the right things and even at times uh, perceive to do the right things, but for some reason, um, when they walk out of the safeguard of the church, their life and their profession, they don't match. And so as Brennan Manning puts, that makes an unbe unbelieving world look in and say, what you claim to believe must be unbelievable. Do you agree or disagree with that? Now, as you're pondering that thought, I want to keep going. What would you say right now in your life is your greatest passion? The thing that stirs you up the most, the thing that uh, puts a, a, a warmth in your belly, the thing that's driving you right now. What would you say right now in your life is your greatest passion? The thing that two out of the seven nights of the week, it like wakes you up in the middle of the night and you're thinking to yourself, I can't get this out of my mind. There must be a reason. What right now would you say is your greatest passion? I would imagine for some of you it might be that work project that you have going on. Maybe for others it would be your kids, more specifically one of your kids, though you would never say that to your other kids. One kid, for some reason, has garnished a lot of your attention right now. Maybe it's your husband or your wife. I see some uh, good uh, elbow nods working right now. Like if it's not, it should be, right? It should be passionate about me. What right now are you um, incredibly passionate about? What I know about passion is this. Whatever we're passionate about, we take that incredibly serious. Whatever it is that's driving you, whatever it is that's really garnishing your attention, you take extremely serious. What I think is funny, though, is how we portray the seriousness. Uh, some of you guys have a serious face, you know what I'm talking about? 
Like some of you just have that face that you can be laughing and joking, but all of a sudden serious face comes out and everyone just like, they just, they just know what's up. Like, dude, I don't know what just happened, but something's going on in that dude's mind. Is, you know, like all of a sudden the eyes slant in, the mouth, whatever. Like how many of you guys have a serious face? All right. Okay. Three of you. Okay. Really? Well, others of you, um, you show your seriousness maybe by a tone of your voice. It changes. It gets deeper maybe if you're a guy or a girl. Uh, something changes in you uh, physically in your body gestures that shows seriousness. I'll say this though, whatever it is that you're passionate about, it causes you to take it with and approach it with such a serious nature that it's easy to tell what it is that you are passionate about. And so the question I want to ask you tonight just in closing of this opening is, would you say right now in your life and your existence that you're passionate, that you're serious about your faith? That it, it causes you to wake up two out of the seven nights, maybe more. You have this stirring, this warmth in your belly, like it's like there's something that's shut up in your bones. When you hear people talk uh, in a manner that would not be befitting of God, it, it makes you angry. When you see people hurting, it causes you to be compassionate. How many of you would say, in being honest with yourself, that as you walked into this room right now, you were super serious about your faith? There was this assumption in the Bible, especially after the resurrection of Christ, that you cannot be a follower of Jesus and not take it seriously. In other words, there's this assumption about the writers and about the early church. That if you are a follower of Christ, if you're seeking after Him, then you're either in or out. Jesus makes a break. There is, in our understanding of the Bible, no gray area. There's either serious or not. There's either I'm all in or I'm not. Unfortunately, what we see in the quote from Brennan Manning is many individuals who want to exist in the gray. They think that somehow that they can put on this front that they believe in God, they trust in God, that everything is working towards God, they can walk out these doors, put on a different lifestyle, and that works. It does not work. It doesn't work at all. It's not the gospel. True believers will manifest themselves in a different way of living. That's what we're going to wrestle with tonight. The seriousness of our faith, the weight of it. And so whether you walked in here super uber passionate and serious, or whether you feel like tonight you're struggling, I pray tonight will be an encouragement the encouragement started a couple weeks ago when we saw these three statements made by our writer. Next slide. In uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 22 through 25, the writer showed us the power of the new covenant, the power of the gospel, the evidence of the gospel in these three let us statements. He said, because of the power and the truth of Jesus, then guess what? Let us draw near to him in full assurance. Christ has made a way to God, let us come, let us draw near. Number two, let us hold fast the confession of hope. I told you guys in the last couple weeks that he's writing this vehemently with great zeal. Thirdly, we looked at last week uh, more intimately, let us continue to meet together, to stir one another up in love and good works. These are the evidences of taking one's faith serious. These will be natural outcomes. Now tonight... We see not the positive side of response to the new covenant, 
Tonight we see what N.T. Wright, the theologian, calls literally the most harsh warning in the entire New Testament. Tonight we see a direct statement to those people who look at the New Covenant and they decide that they want to walk away from it, that they decide they don't want to take faith serious. Again, Jesus said, against popular demand, I have not come for peace, I've come for division. Jesus makes the split. You either accept me or deny me. You either are serious about me or not. And so I invite you, and as N.T. Wright describes, the most serious warning in the New Testament, to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. If you were looking for a lighthearted, uh, pat me on the back uh, text, this is not your text. You may want to read some um, Christian soup for the uh, chicken soup soul, whatever the title is, later on your way home. Let's uh, start here in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to go to verse 31. Read these verses, and then, my friends, we're going to have to battle them tonight. Verse 26, you guys there? For if we, you're scared, I think, you're not sure. For if we go on, verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Pretty light way to open up this text. Verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse then will the punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, uh, he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Verse 30, for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We could say verse 31 and pretty much call it a night. It's a pretty powerful passage. So we've got a ways to go here. Let's start in verse 26 and start heading towards it here. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now this is the age-old question which many people ask me all the time. How do I know that I'm saved? People think about this all the time. They're constantly pondering it. I tend to tell them that if there's doubt, then maybe there's reason for there to be doubt. It seems to me that in, in my experience, although there's uh, certain periods of sin and even backsliding, the, uh, the, the true believers find themselves in places where they're constantly coming back, where the doubt is outweighed by assurance in Christ. You see what I'm saying? And so often when people are asking me, how am I sure that I'm saved? I, I will say, well, the first thing for you to consider is if there's doubt in your mind, is it, is it worth having doubt? Like, should there be doubt there? Well, I want to answer our question tonight with trying to figure out who he's writing to. That's going to be our key. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Who is he writing to? Well, apparently he's writing to a group of people who have heard the knowledge of the truth. Now, there are two main Greek words for knowledge in the New Testament. The first is gnosis. Gnosis describes this kind of general knowledge, this all-encompassing knowledge. Uh, but the other term, which is uh, epinosis, implies the fullness of knowledge, the full truth. So the group of people to which the writer of Hebrews is talking to, 
is a group of people who have heard this. You, inherited from Adam, are a sinner in desperate need of the grace of God. You have a problem. The great promise of God all through the Old Testament is that He would send a Messiah. He did. Sent His Son Jesus, born of a virgin, lived perfectly on this earth, was crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day He rose again. And because of His death, the blood shed on a cross, that uh, blood is the perfect Passover lamb that's been waiting for all of time. He, in His sacrifice, can make atonement for your sins. That's what they've heard. They've heard the fullness of truth. And what the Scripture says is these people, they've heard it, but for some reason it hasn't taken root. They've tiptoed around Christianity. They've played the game. It's been some sort of side circus for them. They've even been a part of the community. They've shared in relationships. They can talk about the Scripture. Their knowledge at times will astound you of the Bible. They know it. But the problem is they go on sinning deliberately, or another way we could say it is willfully. These people find themselves in a dangerous place. They know the knowledge of the truth, the fullness of it, but they go on sinning deliberately. They come to moments of sin or not sin, and they make the conscious choice, sin. Well, uh, if you're like me, you're like, yeah, I just did that an hour ago, so what are you trying to say? Like, like, like is, this text, is this text for me? I'm not sure. It might be. But I want to explain more of what deliberately and willfully means here. Is that cool? Again, there's doubt potentially in your mind and heart, maybe because there should be. But let's work through this a little bit more. In 1 John chapter 3, uh, when we were talking through a similar subject a couple years ago, when we were teaching through 1 John, came across this very helpful verse. We taught it extensively. 1 John chapter 3. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, speaking of Jesus. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Well, one thing before we move on is you'll notice the similarities between Hebrews 10 verse 26 and 1 John chapter 3. Is there's this implication of going on. So it's not this, uh, these momentary acts of deliberate sin, but there's the sense of it ongoing. It's habitual. It's taken root. It's consistent. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 8, and this was the verse that really, really attacked my heart in a powerful way a couple years ago. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. It's a harsh statement. And you and I, as we always do from the Bible, we have to wrestle with the truth of the text. We believe here in our church that the Bible, all of it, is God-inspired. He wrote it. So each word is very poignant, is truth, is to be taken as truth. And so what the writer here is saying is, listen, if you're living a habitually sinful, willfully sinful life, where you consistently come to these points of sin or not sin, and you're constantly and consistently choosing sin, then how can you say that you know God? That makes no sense. It's not that you won't fail. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, he says, listen, if you say that you're without sin, you're a liar. So even, even John recognizes that we will sin and fall away. But the people who should be concerned 
are the people who are around the church culture, can speak the language, have heard the truth, but the pattern of their life shows that they're not taking it serious. It shows that the truth hasn't taken root and transformed their heart. shows that consistently when they come to points of sin or not sin, they deliberately indulge. Yes, I will go for it. This is what pleases me and not God. What First John says in agreement and agreeance with uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is those people are children of the devil. That's what the devil did. The devil chose himself consistently. And so because of that, he was cast down out of heaven. For the devil has been sinning, uh, sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, right? So let's sum up uh, this first part of Hebrews 10, 26 and say this. The term that he's uh, speaking to are people who are called apostates or apostates. These are people who have heard the fullness of the truth and yet they walk away from it. Now I know for many of you, you're like, is that me? I'm not sure. But I know this, the church is riddled with those kinds of folks. All kinds of people in our midst, American Christianity, people who can speak and talk a great game, but when it comes to their life and actions, my friends, it doesn't represent itself as that. And so what uh, verse 26 says, that the reality is for those people, look at this in uh, Hebrews 10, 26, back to my verse there if you could. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? Listen, you've walked away from it. You heard the truth. It's not that Christ will deny your repentance. It's that you're denying repentance. And so because you're denying repentance, my friends, there is no sacrifice for sins. Are we together? It's not that Christ won't open his arms to the repentant heart. It's that you, in your arrogance and pride, have turned from the truth, though it is so precious, right? And so because of that, there's no sacrifice for sins. Now, if there's not sacrifice for sins, there's not grace, then what is there? Verse 27 says this, But instead of fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You won't find this verse on a Christian t-shirt somewhere. Um, fire is interesting because it provides for us. I'm no camper by any stretch, but I know this, that without fire, and if you're a Boy Scout, you need it to cook food, right? Like it, It's this awesome thing created long ago that heats up food, provides for people. So fire has this very providing uh, trait to it. At the same time, we're incredibly fearful of it. You've been at a campfire, right? Oh, just at DV8, a while ago, Brian built like the biggest campfire ever at the ranch. That's like your spiritual gift, I think. It's one of them. It's like building bonfires that are massive. I think the thing that's so lulling about a bonfire is you're sitting there with your hot dog in your hand, and you're thinking to yourself, this is pretty cool. It's making my food, and at the same time, if I took two steps forward, like this would consume and kill me right now, you know? Like you're, you're, you're edging death, and so you're, you, you just feel awesome about it. You know what I mean? You're like, I can stand this close. My hair's going to be synced. I'll smell like smoke for the rest of the week. But still, there's something incredible about this. That's why fire is interesting. Now, because of that, I think that, that we believe that all of the fire talk in the Bible is a metaphor. 
because we can like feel it and reach out because it heats our food sometimes. We think that all the talk about fire in the scripture is just some massive metaphor that God contrived to help us understand what punishment would look like. Unfortunately, in Matthew alone, there are eight mentions of fire in terms of judgment. If you're going to make a metaphor, I wouldn't go that far with it. It's no metaphor, it's reality. The fire is a consuming one. I think the most poignant text that I found in the New Testament is Mark 9. It says this, And if your eye causes you to sin, this is at the end of a long uh, writing here, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, I don't think this is pleasant talking. I think this is reality. Uh, That hell and the reality of damnation and being apart from God has very much to do with fire, this idea of constant punishment. Now, I've been thinking about punishment a lot, and more importantly, I've been thinking about anger. Uh, When's a time in your life that you've just been incredibly furious? If we were to go around the room right now and I were to ask you, listen, here's what I want to know. I want to know the time in your life when you were the most furious. I think we'd come upon some very interesting answers, don't you think? Like, I feel like we would go around the room and all of us would have a very different opinion about each other. Well, I want to be vulnerable with you a couple days ago. I'm watching my three children, and my wife has been out of town for six days now, and uh, I love my kids. They're amazing. I talk about them often here. Blessing. Give me six days with them nonstop, constantly changing, you know, every single diaper. You start to, I don't know, you start to wear down a skosh. I had come down with the flu over the weekend while watching them. That didn't help. But Dawson is getting ready to take his nap. Now, my kids, my boys, when they take naps, they use the uh, the ever-gratifying pacifier. Now, you may have some doctrinal or theological reason why not to use a passy. In my household, we don't see any biblical reason not to, so we rock them, okay? (laughs) Now, Dawson loves his passies. Problem is the dude uh, chews holes in his passies, okay? Well, that's all fine. Normally, we have plenty of extra around. So I give him his passy, getting ready to take him down for his nap, which is an amazing time of the day when you're watching all three for six days in a row, right? A little bit of rest, a little bit of reprieve. And I give him a passy, and apparently there's a hole in it because he takes it out and he throws it across the room. That's his response. <laughs> now, so I, I look, I'm looking around all over the basement, okay? I find two more passies, give them both to him. He gives a couple sucks, and then he throws them out. And I look at them, they have holes in them, okay? So I go and tell Avery, and we're kind of laughing about it right now because this is funny to watch my son go, you know, and then like chuck it against the wall, right? I'm like, that's cute, that's nice, that's really nice. Now, I get... So now I have to call on reinforcements. I call Avery. I'm like, listen, um, this is going to turn out bad for us, okay, if we don't find a passy with no holes, okay? So I've got Avery with my phone flashlight. She's like looking under the couches, okay? We're going crazy. We're all over the house. Then I just start like putting all the passies he's already tried in my pocket, and I'll just like drop them on the floor. I'm like, oh, look, Dawson, here's enough one. No, he's not fooled. You know what I mean? That passy goes in, boom, it's across the wall. Cannot find, listen, we have looked the house, and no exaggeration, for half an hour. By this time, my son is crying because he wants his passy. And Avery's like, Daddy, I don't know where the passy is. And Maddox has woken up from his nap because he's got a dirty diaper. And in that moment of time, there was a certain fury, right, that I felt like, and it's weird how it starts because at first it's kind of a joke. You're kind of, oh, that's nice. That's kind of funny, right? Well, pretty soon, like even over a pacifier, like my 
I start to get red in the face. I'm like, Dawson, you have to take a nap, you know? And I'm not raising my voice, or at least not yet. And I'm just like, please. And, and so finally, I, I give him one of Maddox's pacifiers, and he kind of looks at it at first and, like, gives a chuckle, like, seriously, Dad? But then he takes it, and he goes to sleep. It was amazing, right? And I was thinking about uh, this uh, about, about 20 minutes after they had taken the nap and just thinking how I got so worked up. I was thinking about how easily at times we're angered. Listen, the depth of my anger will never compare to the fury of God against sin. You think you've been furious before? You think you've been angry before? It will not even compare. And people think that God was just furious in the Old Testament. I beg to differ. The scripture says that the wrath of God was placed on his son, Jesus. But my friends, the, the, the penalty for sin has been paid for, for those who believe. For those who, as our writer is talking about, have heard the knowledge of the truth and yet are walking away, punishment remains. And if you think that that's some, now still to you, some compassionate God who's going to say, you know what, you should have tried harder. You could have been so much better. This could have worked out so differently for you. Here, you know, why don't you just take this path? I hope it goes. That's not the case, my friend. We're talking about the God who created things. The God who cannot be near sin. And apart from Christ, as your only escape, the fury of God's wrath will be seen. And these are tough statements, and this is tough to even comprehend. We can't comprehend God's fury. But what does the scripture say in verse 27? Put this back up for me. Verse 27, Hebrews 10. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Well, who are the adversaries here? The judger is God. The adversaries are those who don't believe. You're either with them or for them. There are no in-betweeners. And so the reality of this is, look, that consuming fire will be your reality. And I know people are always like, oh, this church, oh, that pastor, it's hellfire and brimstone. I don't know what else to do with this passage. I don't know how else to preach it. I don't know how else to frame it, except to say we better take our faith incredibly serious because this is the reality. A God who hates sin, my friends, will take vengeance on it. The wrath of, his, uh, the wrath of God towards sin was placed on Jesus. Now that should make the sacrifice of Christ all the more escalated. You start thinking about that picture for a moment. The wrath of God against sin placed on Christ so you wouldn't have to take that wrath. Picture that. That's a loving, gracious, compassionate, faithful God. And yet we have the audacity at times to make a mockery of it. And that's what he goes on to help us understand here in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, here's his approach, his strategy. I want to show them something they'll understand. Written to a Jewish audience, they understand the Old Testament. We should understand it more like they do, but they get it. So he's like, all right, I'm going to show you something. If you think it was bad in the Old Testament, then, then we'll see what, how it works in the, in the New Covenant. So let's look at the example here. How did things work in the Old Testament? Let's look at Deuteronomy here, chapter 17. If there is found among you, this is in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman that, do, that does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, 
in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it then you shall inquire what? Diligently. You seek it out. As people have served, worship other gods. Love the ad here of the sun and the moon. And if it is true and certain that such an, an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Pretty lighthearted punishment here in the Old Covenant. Pretty lighthearted understanding. You find someone who's worshipped another god. They have two or three witnesses. You take them out and you stone them. Next slide, the end of this in Deuteronomy uh, 17.6. On the evidence of two or three uh, of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So there's a little bit of grace, or it has to be multiple people who would adhere to this, right? The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Here's his point. Listen, if you think that was intense, which we would all like look at that and be like, are you serious? Like, picture our philosophy if that was still happening now, right? The thought is, is that maybe there would be a heightened level of seriousness. Would there be? Would you take things a little bit more, like, would you be caught worshiping some other god? So if this was the physical consequence in this culture, then why would you ever place that understanding higher than the next verse says. Put back, uh, put up my next verse. And uh, no, verse 29 there for me. How much worse punishment then do you think will be uh, deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? You think it was bad in Deuteronomy 17 when they found some... And we instantly would say, like, man, if that was the case, like, dude, no way I'm worshiping another god. Those people are going to take me out and stone me at the city gates. So then why have you lessened the worshiping of other gods now when the punishment is more severe? That's his point. There's three things he says here in verse 29. The first, next slide, has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Now, this is going to really grab some pieces of the depths of our heart. Uh, to trample on something, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure what the right uh, biological term here would be or the right job of this would be, but to trample on something is very active. Okay, You don't trample on something in reaction. You trample on something if it's an action. There's something in front of me. I make the decision to either step on it or not. It doesn't step on me. I step on it. Are we together? So what he's saying here is, if you think that you can trample on the Son of God, make a mockery of the person of Christ, in an actionary sense, step all over Him, take advantage of Him. If you think you can do that and your punishment will be less severe than the Old Testament, you have something new coming for you, my friend. Again, like I, I try to tell people everywhere I go, and I mentioned it again last week, people are always asking me, why are you so fired up about it? Because it is so incredibly serious. This is serious stuff, serious implications. This isn't a side circus. 
this is the God of the universe who sent his son. And he's talking to these apostates who have come close to the knowledge. They've turned back and, out, and as they're walking away, trampling on the son of God. He means nothing. Jesus, that's what they're saying. Would you say that tonight? He means nothing. I don't want to know your words. I want to see your actions. What would your life say? Would your life say that Jesus means something, or would your life say he means nothing? And I'm not talking about yesterday, I'm talking about today, these moments, these last hours, right? The next thing he says, and this is tough, and has profaned the blood of the covenant. So these folks knew the truth of the blood, the power of the blood. And here's what they said about that blood. They said, yeah, that blood... Um, that, that, was, that was nice and all. I appreciate the human Jesus. It was such a nice picture there of sacrifice. But the blood dripping down from the cross has no power. That's what profaning the blood is. It has no power. It's a man on a cross dying. Won't resurrect. In a tomb. Gone forever. That's what profaning the, the, the blood is. So we, in our opportunities to celebrate and take serious the blood of Christ, do you guys understand how incredibly important it is to sit and just thank God for the blood sacrifice of His Son? No profane. No blasphemy. Taking it serious. And for me, probably one of the most significant here, uh, lastly, has outraged the spirit of grace. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute if I could. When you have more of something, you take it for granted. I was thinking about this image earlier today. Someone gave me my favorite garment, a shirt to wear. And they said, listen, we want to supply you with a lifetime supply of that garment. So here, like you just get to rock this Puma jacket for the rest of your life. And, and there's going to be a non-ending flow of them. Well, guess what happens? I wear one. And then like I go home, and because there's a never-ending flow of them, guess what? I put on another one. I'm not going to take the time to take care of this one because I have another one. So I go home. It gets a little bit wrinkly. Guess what? Here comes another and another and another. It's different if someone says, listen, I know this is your fav favorite garment, and you have one of them. So make sure you take care of it. Hold it tight. It's precious. Grace is such a precious thing. And because it abounds, how quick are we to take advantage of it? Because it is so all-encompassing, so sufficient, so never-ending, how quickly we are to shed it and act like it doesn't matter because we're going to get grace again. It's cheapening grace. It's making an outrage of the spirit of grace. It's making a mockery of the gospel. Paul said, and we've quoted all the time, shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. It's precious. It's a gift. So don't make a mockery of it. 
It's not to be used and abused. It's to be cherished in moments when it's necessary. And can we just agree it is necessary? I will fail, I will struggle, I will fall short, and His grace covers me, my friends. But if I'm deliberately and willfully sinning over and over and over, then is that grace anymore? She says, listen, if you want to think for one second that you can do these three things, and you're going to walk to the judgment seat of God, and He's going to say, oh yeah, come on in, you've done well, you have a new thing coming. Verse 30 says, quoting Romans chapter 12, one of my favorite verses, chapters of the Bible. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Well, what I love about verse 30 is that means I don't have to. I know many of you have spent a lot of your existence judging others. That's pretty much what you do. You damn other souls to heaven or hell. You're constantly making determination on where people are going. And you're constantly, I would imagine, even some of you in your minds tonight have been thinking about all the people that fit into this category that you know. Oh, it must be this person. I bet this person is who he's talking about. It certainly can't be me. But what I love about the fact that God will get his vengeance, that it's his, is that then I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to spend my time consumed with judgment. In other words, I can spend my time consumed with the person of God, pursuing Him, seeking Him, loving Him, basking in His love, and I can leave judgment to the only one who's worthy to judge. He's perfect. He created. He has a plan. So I'll sit back and let Him do the judging. He will repay. I don't have to. He will take vengeance. I need not. And so that power, that truth of what He's saying here in a passionate moment for this writer. And do you get that? He says three let us statements, and I told you two weeks ago, his passion is building. He says these ten chapters worth of truth, they have to change your life. And so then he gives the positive ways that they do. Let us, let us, let us. And then as his passion rises and the Holy Spirit inspires, he says if you don't, if you don't respond to Jesus, this is your reality. And that's when he ends in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So what I want to ask, is it? Is it? I know the Bible says it is. But is it for you? When you think about the character of God. When you ponder his greatness and his faithfulness and his mercy. When you get a picture of how great he is. Does it cause you in your heart to fear? It is a fearful thing to be in the hands of a living God. Is it for you? Uh, many of us have relationships that are purely, let's call them political. You know you need them. So what do you do? When you see him, firm handshake, nice smile, make sure you comment on how beautiful their kids are, offer them a gift card every now and again to make sure you're doing your due diligence, and then as soon as you're away about 10, 12, 13 feet from them, 
you're already blaspheming, you're already saying and making all kinds of judgments about them. And if you were to come again in contact, the smile would return, the firm handshake would be extended because you know you need that relationship. And so because you need it, guess what? You need to put on the act. You need to make sure that there's nothing in them that would ever see you as an adversary. They have to think you're an advocate no matter what you're saying behind closed doors. What the writer is saying, you want to approach God that way, my friends, it can't happen. You can't extend the firm handshake. You can't put on the smile. You can't act like it's all okay. You can't tiptoe into Christianity. You can't act like that all of a sudden you have this knowledge of the truth and then turn your back because he knows your heart. You can't, uh, you can't fool him. You can't make a mockery of him. And if you do, then your outcome is completely secure. You will be an adversary of God and find yourself in an eternity worth of fire. Now, I've been thinking a lot in preparation for tonight what a healthy fear as a Christian of the Lord is. Because I think for you guys, there's really two questions. Are you an apostate? Are you one of these people? Are you someone who has filled your life with Christian pleasantries, but ultimately your life would share and show that you have and want nothing to do with Jesus. It looks great here, but when you leave here, deliberately and willfully, consistently and repeatedly sinning. If that's you tonight, listen, the period of grace is, is open. I love the fact that tonight we can gather and share this truth and in a tough text, remind some of you that this might be you, that listen, repent and be saved. His grace is sufficient for your sins. Like tonight, right, right now, there's no reason for you just to tiptoe in Christian knowledge any longer. Pray that God would soften your heart, believe in the gospel, confess with your mouth, and turn and live for him. And guess what? That's why he said, let us keep meeting together. Why? Because you're going to need discipleship and encouragement and fellowship. So if that's you here tonight, listen, repent and be saved. That is the message of the gospel over and over and over. Repent, turn from your sin, and be saved. In Christ, it's possible. For those of us that this isn't talking about, for the Christian, what does it look like to have a healthy fear of the Lord? So I was thinking about that question. The only thing that I could, that I could imagine is what I share with you as we open tonight. I truly and firmly believe that a healthy fear of the Lord is one that early and often trembles at the reality of who God is. That at the simplest of thoughts, the minute of passages, at the crazy picture of his love, I would be brought to this place where I fear and respect and awe him so much that I would be brought to the footstool of worship trembling because he reigns. So for the non-Christian tonight, turn and repent. And for the Christian, imagine the fury of God being imputed on his son so that you could experience grace. And maybe in that moment, you'll celebrate in fear and awe of what he's done for you. So tonight, you have a great chance to celebrate that. 
I guess for me, um, tonight kind of has new meaning. I mean, I've taken communion since I was a 10, 11, 12-year-old boy. And it's one of those Christian patterns that we just kind of do. We process, we pull off, we dip, we, we just do it. But for me tonight, even me, this has new meaning. Even as I like hold this symbol and, and as I think on the things of God, I want this symbol in the broken body and blood of Christ to cause my heart to have a renewed sense of passion for what he did. And so he said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then he held up the cup. So his disciples were watching. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The blood that would be so precious. And yet so costly. And he said, take and drink. And do this in remembrance of me. Many of you know what happened that night. Judas, who had the full knowledge of the gospel, had seen the miracles. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. His disciples, they run from the cross because they're scared and fearful like all of us would be. But upon his resurrection, my friends, there's a seriousness to their faith that becomes fully alive and present. And the broken body and the shed blood of Christ isn't just an ideal for these disciples. It's now the means by which daily life and breath and the seriousness of their passion come all together and change everything. And so I encourage you tonight to reflect on the power and the sacrifice of our great God. And maybe it would cause us to tremble. Respond when you're ready.